Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's first Friday session for November. Founded in 1993, SASH works to promote facilitate, disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org, and our site has all sorts of great information from short posts to long form research articles. You can also connect to us on social media with Facebook and Twitter, and you can join our society through the website. We're really excited for today's session as we believe it will be a foundational one for all interested in club soccer history. Our three guests definitely believe in the mantra that every club has a history and every club should have a historian. So let me introduce these three uh, presenters first uh, and then we'll continue with the program. And I will pick up with a Q&A session at the end, but all are free to join in and ask questions. David Kilpatrick is back once again uh, as a presenter. He's a professor of history, I'm, I'm sorry, professor of English literature and sport management at Mercy College, where he's a director of the sport management program. He's also the club historian of the New York Cosmos and as a section three coach trainer for AYSO, he oversees coaching education in the Northeast United States. He earned his PhD in Comp Lit and MA in Philosophy at Binghamton University and his MS in Sport Management, which he'll talk about today uh, from the State University of New York at Cortland. Following David, Bob Gansler will join us. He's an energy solutions engineer with Excel Energy in Minneapolis. During his soccer playing career, Bob was part of three storied programs, Bavarian Soccer Club, Marquette University High School, and Princeton University. In fact, Bob played in front of me at Princeton and definitely helped keep my goals against average down. However, I do have a nice scar uh, where he went to head the ball that I caught. I don't think I called keeper on that one, so uh, it's my fault, but thankfully it's above uh, my hairline still. Uh, you'll recognize the family name, of course, as Bob's father coached the United States to its first World Cup in 40 years in 1990. Bob is the historian of the Bavarian Soccer Club, his boyhood club, and he recently released a documentary about the club's 1976 National Amateur Cup title. Derek Goncalves is the man behind the Fall River Marksman historian handle on Twitter, where he routinely posts fascinating bits of history and memorabilia about the famous American club, the topic of his presentation today. Derek is a Fall River native and soccer enthusiast, who is not related to the, another Fall River Gangavis, Billy, a veteran of two World Cups. Derek works as a mental health therapist and spends a lot of his free time as the club historian of the Fall River Marksman. I had the absolute pleasure of touring the Spindle City with Derek earlier this fall. And I'm Tom McCabe, and I'll help moderate the question and answer period at the end of this session. So thanks for joining us today, and we'll turn it over to David Kilpatrick. Thank you very much, Tom, and uh, hello, everyone. Um, it's uh, really wonderful to, to be here um, on 
such an historic day in our nation's history, to say the least. Um, I don't know how many of you have uh, much uh, by way of sleep, but uh, certainly uh, not at all uh, shy on enthusiasm today. So uh, um, I, I would like to think that uh, what we're engaged in here is part of the, uh, the, the national experiment and uh, all that is good in, in, in what this experiment has been about. Uh, so, well, with uh, very little sleep over the past week, um, it's just really, really great to be with everybody. So uh, the title of my talk is uh, taken from my master's thesis at SUNY Cortland uh, from a couple of years ago, uh, The Historian Role at a Professional Soccer Club, an Autobiographical Case Study. Um, so it'll be structured uh, on the basis of uh, that case study, which was itself structured after my job description uh, when I joined the New York Cosmos in November of 2012. Uh, so really quickly um, about the club. Uh, the New York Cosmos were formed in 1971 in the North American Soccer League and competed in the North American Soccer League through 1984. Um, a little bit in the MISL as well uh, into 1985 when the club suspended competitive operations. Uh, but in August of 2013, the club returned to competitive play in the revived North American Soccer League at Hofstra University. Uh, in the upper right of that uh, screen, you see the actual kickoff. In the bottom right, uh, that's that's my daughter in the beginning there. So, um, just a little bit uh, about the club. If you have any questions about the club's history and and uh, the reboot, if you will, I'm happy to take those later on. But how's it going? Um, We'll move on just a little bit in terms of myself and who I am. I think uh, it might be a little bit relevant to pull a, a picture out of my, uh, uh, I guess I should be embarrassed to say, my freshman uh, year high school yearbook. You can see I'm uh, wearing my favorite shirt in the bottom left-hand corner there. Um, and the photo in the bottom right I found in the barn a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing holding that uh, teddy bear, but... Uh, I don't know what should be more embarrassing, the, the teddy bear or anything else in the photo, but regardless, um, in the upper right-hand uh, corner, you see I was a card-carrying uh, proud member of the Cosmos Kickers, the youth fan club back in the 1980s. Uh, so my, my love for the Cosmos goes back uh, to my youth. I began uh, archival curation, uh, really, when I was a kid. Uh, that medal on the left there was a token from the October 1st, 1977 uh, farewell game for Pelé. I think that might be the first object that I ever collected. Uh, so I became a rather obsessive collector of all things uh, Cosmos uh, since the late 1970s. Um, in terms of archives and their curation, uh, I had been down to Hillsboro, North Carolina. Um, that uh, is an image that I took there from the basement. Some of you have been there. Some of you would like to get there. Uh, some of you would like to have what's in there, move to somewhere um, more accessible, of course. Uh, but my, uh, my access to the archive and the materials there that I'd collected uh, was something known uh, to the club. Uh, and when Eric Stover became the COO in 2012, um, he reached out to me uh, to get me involved. The Cosmos archive uh, involves a uh, tremendous amount of material objects, um, whether it's uh, jerseys, trophies, um, thousands of videos. Um, contracts, uh, a lot of random internal documents 
um, there was a, a total list of 1,884 videotapes. Uh, in May 2014, I had to create a wish list out of those. Some of those videotapes uh, were able to be digitized. Some of them were not. Um, that's just an example uh, of some of the responsibility that I took on uh, when I joined the club. Another uh, important responsibility uh, that I've had with the club since 2012 is writing feature articles. Uh, I've written over 80 uh, pieces for the club website, uh, ranging from interviews with legends like Carlos Alberto uh, to features on uh, playoff games or championship games, whatever it may be. And of course, uh, what I seem to be writing more and more of of late, unfortunately, um, obituaries for the players, um, the, the legends of the game who played such a formative role in the club. Um, that's one of, the, one of the things that I have to do. Another thing uh, that I have to do is participate in um, press releases and public relations uh, efforts. Um, one of them that was an especially challenging one to write was when the club uh, went to Saudi Arabia a few years ago. Um, that made some people rather upset. Um, again, this is just one example uh, of a press release that uh, I think I, I was charged with the lead on that, but there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen. And uh, it's just an example of kind of very sensitive hot potato that um, is sometimes tossed in my, uh, in my way. Um, one press release that I wrote that uh, I'm still very frustrated to say I never uh, got to see published was a press release uh, to announce the new Cosmo Stadium that we were expecting to open in Queens. Um, again, I wrote that press release with the expectation it was going to be published in hours. And of course, that stadium is still um, yet to be built and is once more um, just a, a hope uh, rather than uh, any promise to put the shovel to dirt. Um, in terms of informational sessions, that's another uh, part of the, the role. Um, I would give uh, sessions regularly to front office staff, especially ticketing staff, to make sure uh, they had some kind of an awareness of the club and its mission. Uh, when we had a youth soccer coaching uh, wing of operations, the training and development program, uh, I would regularly give uh, uh, lectures on the club's history uh, for the youth coaches. Again, just so everyone had a sense of the mission, the vision, and the legacy that the, the club embodies. Um, I would also give uh, similar talks in the New York City area um, on, uh, on the club's history when, when appropriate, when invited. Um, that representation, of course, went, went beyond just the internal uh, lectures and uh, public talks. Um, I also gave several uh, talks at uh, academic conferences. Some of you listening right now uh, may have even met me in, in that type of role, uh, whether it's presenting uh, at something for SASH or uh, something for the uh, North American uh, Society for Sport History or Sport Literature Association. Um, I, I've, I've spoken uh, rather widely in that forum. Uh, I've done a lot of broadcasts and podcasts um, and uh, quoted in a lot of magazines and things like that. Um, so uh, on the left, you see me uh, actually interviewing uh, Giovanni Severisi, um, the middle of presenting uh, on what was One World Sports, a network that doesn't exist anymore 
and in the uh, right there, I'm on Japanese TV, and I believe that's how you spell David Kilpatrick in Japanese, but I was on National Public TV uh, interviewed uh, when the reboot began. Um, one of the most exciting parts of the job is the opportunity to meet so many of my heroes um, and try to preserve their legacy. Um, I, th I think uh, many of you heard me talk before about how uh, amnesia and antagonism and apologetics are at the heart of U.S. soccer. Um, and one of my great fears is that these legends of the game that meant so much to me as a child um, that really opened up the world to me, um, that their, their impact, uh, their effect on the U.S. soccer landscape uh, can all too easily be forgotten. So uh, I've got to, to know so many of the uh, players uh, from back in the day. And um, as you see in the upper left there, there's, there's Clive Toy, the founding general manager, the person who essentially named the club the Cosmos. Um, he actually had recommended me for the position of club historian. So Eric Stover knew me uh, before 2012 and, and Clive, who was the founding GM, had uh, recommended me for the position. Uh, but as you can see the, uh, from the people in the photos here, whether it's Beckenbauer, Bogisevich, or uh, uh, Barry Mayhew, who recently passed away, the, the club's captain of their first championship team in 72, even in the middle there, George Siega, the first player to ever sign with the Cosmos, or Werner Roth, the captain when Pelé uh, won the title, Joseph Yelenek, Hubert Birkenmeyer, Eskandarian, Randy Horton, the list goes on. So many uh, people I'm really blessed uh, to know. I serve as a bridge between those players and the club. And uh, in that way, I try to help connect them with the team that comes on the field. Uh, some of them have, have, have gotten quite close to the team, at least different uh, seasons they have. Um, so I connect with them, keep them uh, up to date with what's going on with the club and uh, work with them to, to celebrate their legacy um, and also serve as a, a conduit to them for uh, media requests and things of that nature. Um, I'm also a resource uh, for players and staff. Uh, I've worked with essentially two ownership groups. Um, on the left, you'll see Seamus O'Brien, who is the chairman, uh, the reboot, you know, 2012-2013. Uh, through about 2018. On the right, there's Rocco Camiso. Uh, in the middle, I'm flanked by Giovanni Severisi, who's now head coach of the Portland Timbers, of course, but he led us to uh, three titles in the revived NASL. And uh, to my right in that photo is Eric Stover, the, the COO who hired me. And uh, I'm still uh, very proud to say I'm working with him. In the bottom left, you see I got to play with the Cosmos C team. Uh, and the uh, middle there, that's a group of us in the front office about to board a plane to go to a championship game. Um, I also uh, get to advise for events and displays. In the thesis that I wrote, I talked about not much happening with that. My understanding when uh, I joined the club was that that would really be um, a, a big part of the stadium project that we were hoping to pull together. Uh, but uh, as I was Putting this uh, talk together, um, I kind of reflected upon it and thought, no, we actually have done you know, some advisement for events and different displays. If you uh, wander through Little Italy, you'll see Giorgio Pinaglia's jersey. I got to present that to the Italian American Museum um, at the Galician uh, Film Festival, uh, Alain du Cosmos. I got to present uh, Santiago Formoso with uh, a team signed jersey. Uh, with his name on the back. 
So um, I do get to do some things like that. But again, the, the, the prospect or promise of a, of a stadium of our own uh, is still really what I uh, see as the ultimate goal for that kind of advisement on events and displays. Um, grassroots marketing has been a really big part of the job. Um, and as you can see in these images here, it's tremendous fun. Uh, I've formed great, great friendships with uh, alums and fellow staff members, but uh, the fans are really like a family. Uh, so whether it's going out to the pubs with them or uh, just connecting on social media or um, whatever it may be, um, the, the Cosmos core fan base is really like a family. And um, again, I, I serve as a resource for them. And I think uh, just as the stories of the players and the front office um, is a really important part of the club's narrative, um, understanding the stories of the fans from back in the 70s to the present day is a hugely important uh, part of, of that role. Um, I've also been very involved in different charitable efforts, whether it's uh, working with Special Olympics or uh, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation um, or uh, just uh, connecting with uh, the supporters groups and putting together a tournament for uh, supporters groups of uh, the various uh, European and South American uh, clubs that exist throughout the New York City area. Um, been very, very involved in, in the grassroots marketing efforts of the club. Um, dealt with a lot of media and scholarly inquiries. Again, see yet another bullet point in the uh, um, the contract, the job description. Um, I uh, included this quote here um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I, I wish what I said sounded that good. Um, and uh, I thought Kevin would be on the call and his French is much better than mine. Um, so uh, I, I will uh, allow you to read it, but uh, yeah, it is one of those things where I, I was having lunch with a French journalist on the banks of the Hudson and uh, a few weeks later that appeared in PK Foot. Um, but I think it really does capture uh, so much of, of what's at stake in, in uh, what I do for the club, which in many ways is serving not only as an historian, but also as uh, what I like to call a mythographer or a mythologist, uh, cultivating um, the myth uh, of the club. Um, again, that's something we can talk about in terms of notions of truth, notions of myth, uh, historical narrative. Um, we do talk about that quite a bit within the club. Um, and I, I see my uh, responsibility as, as uh, uh, being the, the one who uh, carries out that, or carries on uh, sharing that myth in an almost uh, Homeric way. Um, I've also appeared in numerous media outlets, whether it's a legendary uh, radio station in New York City, WBAI, uh, Fox 5, New York. Uh, there's the two ends of the spectrum uh, politically. Uh, you've also got MSG Network. Uh, for some reason, I have WBAI in there twice. Maybe it's just because I love the station so much. I've also appeared in a lot of um, uh, radio and TV in other countries, whether it's Brazil or Japan or uh, Ireland. Um, in media articles, uh, I've been quoted in magazines like New Republic, San Francisco Chronicle, The Sport Journal, Howler, if you remember um, the piece that was there a, a few years ago. I've also appeared on podcasts like Feuerstein's Fire, the First Team Podcast, and Yellow Card, many others. Uh, don't mean to be guilty of sins of omission, but if I've left somebody out, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. Um, and I've, I've appeared in a few films uh, talking about the cosmos. 
Elendo Cosmos, which is about Santiago Formoso, uh, the Manchester United TV documentary, uh, The American Dream, um, A Bridge to Cuba, which chronicled our visit to Havana a few years ago, and uh, Soccer Town USA, which uh, is directed by someone I think a few of you on this uh, session uh, know. Uh, so uh, the ultimate uh, role, I think, of the club historian is one of custodianship, um, carrying on the, the values of the club. Um, the most recent thing I was asked to do a couple days ago uh, was to list 10 to 20 words that best represent the club. Uh, myself, a few players, some other fans were all asked this kind of question, and that, that just kind of... Uh, um, speaks to uh, some of the fun parts of the job, if you will. But uh, um, you might recognize that's the back of my head. That's from the um, kind of identity uh, book that the, the club had put together a few years ago. Uh, but uh, the, the sense of the club's values and, and their preservation um, to, to bridge the, the past to the future is really uh, very much uh, what's at stake in that role. And uh, then I, I guess, somewhat uh, shamelessly included two testimonials that I'm really proud of. Um, quote from Eric Stover when he was asked about me in an interview back in 2018, and something I'm especially proud of, the Five Points uh, Supporters Club um, posted that statement about uh, the work I've done for the club, and uh, I can't tell you how, how proud that made me. Um, and uh, with that, I'm afraid I uh, would be uh, pushing my time limit and want to allow uh, plenty of room for the other speakers. Uh, but I wanted to just give a little bit of a foundation, literally taking this master's thesis document and the job description itself and just kind of laying out some of the things I've done in those capacities. So thank you all. Thank you, David. And we'll uh, pass the ball uh, over to Bob Gansler. Okay, thanks. You'll notice that I crossed out Junior on the title slide. I've had many appendages to my name over the years, son of UVM soccer coach Bob Gensler, son of U.S. national team coach Bob Gensler, son of Kansas City Wizards coach Bob Gensler. Junior, however, is not one of them. I have a middle name, and my dad, as he says, was too poor to have one, so not a junior. Uh, the title of my presentation is Der sich Bayern nennt, which translated means that which is called Bayern. It's a line from the club's song. So there will be a little German thrown around in the presentation since the club was formed as a German club. Uh, in fact, it was founded in Milwaukee in 1929 by 14 immigrants from the German state of Bavaria under the name of Fußballklub Bayern. They hatched the idea on July 16th, officially met on July 29th and played their first game a month later. Over the course of that fall, the club gained more members and more players. By the end of the season, FC Bayern was champion of the Milwaukee Municipal A-League, the second division in the city. The club grew so much by 1930 that it was able to field four teams in the Milwaukee uh, Municipal Leagues. Uh, the club later joined the State League and enjoyed more successes in the 40s and the 50s. And in 1956, the club officially changed its name from FC Bayern to the Bavarian Soccer Club. 
Uh, the 1960s were a golden era for the club as it won seven consecutive state league championships, uh, something that was told to me many, many, many times in the Rotskeller as my dad and his contemporaries talked about how great they were. And they probably were as, about as good as they said they were. So uh, in 1976, the Pabst Blue Ribbon Bavarians, the sponsor at the time was Pabst Blue Ribbon. Uh, they won the club's first national title, uh, something as Tom mentioned that I recently put together a documentary about. There were more state titles in the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and a couple of second place national finishes in 1983 and 1994. Uh, in the 2000s, then uh, the club won three consecutive amateur cup titles, as well as two USASA Open Club titles. And then more recently, uh, second, place finishes in the National Amateur Cup in 2016 and 2017, which was followed by a title in 2018, as well as a UPSL National League title. So that's a little overview of the club history. How did I begin collecting it? I suppose it would have been in 1979 when I was a member of the under 10 team and the club was celebrating its 50th anniversary. This booklet uh, was produced to commemorate the event and the festivities. Uh, the booklet included some chronological history and some essays about the early days of the club. And I continued to collect memorabilia over the last 10 years as I played for the club until I moved out here to Minnesota. So how my collecting really began in earnest was in 2014 when I did some Google searches and I came across the Google newspaper archives that had archives of the Milwaukee Journal and Milwaukee Sentinel. While initially I was just going to find some articles to share with my dad, I kept on uncovering more and more information. So I discovered artic interesting articles predating my dad's playing days and I started to document things. And one file became a file for each decade. Eventually those files became too big and a file was made for each year. And I came up with a convention for cataloging the articles by title with competition type, score and opponent. So I'm an engineer, so spreadsheets would eventually get involved. Uh, I called this big thing, the all-timer, a play on the old-timer team name uh, for those who had retired from the major team. And it allows me to easily see what happened on a, any particular day. Uh, it also can report results by season, by competition, and by opponent. And it's what I use every day to post uh, various things within the Bavarian Soccer Club Facebook group. So after mining the newspaper archives, I started looking for some other sources of information. I started at home. Uh, Gensler Keller archeology loosely translated means digging in my parents' basement. There's a lot of soccer memorabilia that my dad has acquired over the years. I found a lot of things there, booklets from international matches, frames, pictures, and trophies. And I don't think I found everything that's down there yet. 
The next big acquisition was the Aufnahmeschein, which translates to the intake cards or membership application cards. Uh, the former, a former club uh, membership secretary had these when the club decided to go electronic and the rest of the club didn't know what to do with them. When she saw that I was posting things, she let me have them. So uh, over to the right are the cards of the original members when they signed those back in 1929. And on the left is my card when I officially became a member in 1976. In 2017, one of my dad's old teammates uh, told me that I should visit him the next time I was in Milwaukee. Gunther Berra was a player and for decades he was a club official behind the scenes and later a longtime president. Uh, Uncle Gunn, as I call him, uh, had boxes of booklets and pictures that he had gotten from his predecessors in his own collecting over the years, and he bequeathed them to me. And we went uh, over these things for hours that day in early January. Uh, then he gave me a special box. This one was a collection of Johnny Hartenberger, who was a member of the club since the 1930s, a longtime president and also an honorary president. There was a notebook in which Johnny had put clippings from the German newspapers back in the day. And there were also uh, full newspaper pages that he had collected of uh, significant events in the club's history. And then Uncle Gunn pointed me to a table of notebooks and said, now this is where you'll find the really interesting stuff. And these were the protocols. They're the minutes of the club meetings going back to the very first meeting in 1929. They're written in German until 1962 with some questionable penmanship and spelling. Uh, they cover all sorts of information about the club's official business, reports, uh, team reports, membership, controversies, the elections, uh, a lot of stuff. It, Took me probably the better part of two years to finally read through all the stuff. And one of these days I'll uh, translate and uh, write more stuff, write about what it is that I found. Uh, later that year, I recalled that uh, a decade before that one of my dad's teammates had an extensive scrapbook of his playing days from the 50s and 60s. And I was able to borrow that scrapbook and make copies of it all. Uh, it had pictures and newspaper articles uh, with a lot of things from the, the club's tour of Germany in 1962. So those uh, mag newspaper articles there are from Germ actual German newspapers uh, that covered the, the club's tour in 1962. Uh, in 2018, I was able to make copies of another notebook. Eric Ziaia had been the manager of the team from 1968 to 1973. And during that time, he recorded details of every game, including the starting lineup and the goal scorers. That year, I discovered that I could borrow microfilms from the Wisconsin Historical Society. So I began scanning articles from the Milwaukee Deutsche Zeitung. And it's been slow going since that newspaper was published daily and there were soccer articles almost every issue. I also discovered that my local Minnesota History Center had microfilms of the Milwaukee Herald, uh, a German newspaper that since it was actually printed in Winona, Minnesota, that's why 
the Minnesota History Center has it. I've almost completed cataloging all the articles that were published from 1950 through 1982 when the paper shut down. Last fall, I acquired the collection of Willie Wessels, another player from the 50s to the 70s and a coach from the 80s. It included uh, pictures and booklets and newsletters. And then over here on the left, there's also his handwritten notes about every game and every practice when he was the coach of the team. So what have I done with this information besides catalog it and, face, and post it on Facebook? Uh, last year for the club's 90th anniversary, they asked me to put together some posters of the club's history. So among others, I made posters of each decade listing the important events of each year, and these were displayed at the anniversary festivities. That information has also been used for other things. Last year, Bayern Munich uh, wrote an article for the club magazine about the Bavarian Soccer Club. Uh, the two clubs have had a relationship back stretching to the, the 1950s and they played against each other in 1966. Uh, all those pictures shown were things that I supplied and I also provided them with some of the information that was incorporated into the article. Um, the club itself has been redecorating the, uh, the clubhouse recently and a number of the pictures that I found and identified who all the people are, are now hanging on the walls. But the, the thing that I'm probably most proud of is that I was able to recreate the original club crest from some of the old photos. And so now that club crest is being used and it was part of the 90th anniversary kit that they uh, put together. Um, my most recent expedition was last year going to the club, uh, going to the storage areas, to see all the trophies that have been collected over the decades. I spent an entire morning there and I still barely only made a dent into seeing all of them. So what's next in terms of collecting Bavarian Soccer Club history? I've got a number of things to do, more microfilms to scan, eventually translating the German articles. Unfortunately, some things will have to wait until the pandemic is over since uh, travel is limited, uh, such as digging through my parents' basement more getting to the Wisconsin Soccer Association's collection and visiting the granddaughter of Frank Trimmel, who was a legendary player for the club back in the 30s and 40s, whose memorabilia she uh, still has. In the meantime, I still have things that I can do. And uh, a certain wise soccer coach would ask me after each game, did you have fun? Because that's the main thing. And when it comes to collecting Bavarian soccer club history, I'm always having fun. Fantastic, Bob. I know many of us are jealous of those sources that uh, you've been able to uncover. So uh, we'll uh, turn uh, back east and uh, invite uh, Derek uh, to talk about Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, my name is Derek Gonzalez, and I recently became the club historian for the Fall River Marksman uh, a little over a year ago. It was uh, late October of 2019. Um, when I started doing this uh, with the club. Um, just a little bit of how did I get here? Um, well, I was born and raised in Fall River. I now live in Somerset, which is across the river uh, from Fall River. Uh, I'm Portuguese, so football has been in my blood since I can remember. The earliest memories I have, there's uh, 
Portuguese football in the background or at least on the radio, if not on the TV. Um, so that geared me to follow the sport, enjoy the sport, specifically the European style at the time. Uh, the MLS wasn't around and there wasn't really, there wasn't a lot going on at that time because I was maybe five, six, seven years old when I remember it. Um, that led me to stay in the youth system in Fall River. I played up until high school. Turfie High School is the main public high school of Fall River. Um, and during that time, I never once heard of the Fall River Marksmen, never knew of the Fall River Rovers, never knew anything about anyone or any team that brought success and and honor to the city. Um, how I discovered it was uh, one day I was playing in a lot in Tiverton that I had no idea how important it was to the history of U.S. soccer. Um, and we were one day closed off from that lot and we were kind of frustrated, me and my friends. And um, it, was in, it was kind of getting close to the winter so we couldn't find any other place to play. But I went home and for some reason I wanted to look up U.S. Open Cup winners. And that's when I first discovered the Fall River Rovers and then the Marksmen. Um, and then from there, I was just fascinated with the history that Fall River provided uh, for U.S. Uh, soccer history, to, to be honest. And not just with clubs, but players, you know, Tommy Swords, Billy Gonzalez, Bert Patnod, um, the Souzas, John and Ed Souza. Uh, the list can go on. Um, the teams winning the American Cups or the, or the U.S. Open Cups at the time. So at that time, I was 18. I didn't have a lot of available uh media or, or the know with all to, to, to do this or, or, or understand it. I just did everything strictly by memory. Um, and uh, again, I didn't have the in-depth uh, information and history uh, until later on. So, and why am I doing this? Well, again, I did this by accident. Uh, one, one day my wife turned to me and she said, Hey, I look at this and the fall of remarks in the current club were promoting a revival tour and we checked out the website. They had mentioned the positions that they had already filled. Uh, and the one position they hadn't filled was historian. And she looked at me and said, you have to apply. And I said, I don't know. Do you want me to do this? Uh, I told her, you know, I, once, once I go down a rabbit hole, it's hard for me to come out. Um, but I, I told her that if, if, if they take me, I'll, I'll take it seriously. So I wrote, I wrote an email and here we are today. And this is how I've started to do this. And I've taken this um, by the reins in the sense of like, uh, of bringing light back to the history that the Fall River Marksmen have and uh, the honor that they brought the city of Fall River, which has always been a hardworking town um, populated by immigrants from England, Scotland, Ireland, and then from Portugal later on. Uh, just very hardworking people. and based on a lot of the information and data I found, it's, the club was very hardworking in the beginning as well. Um, so I am very motivated to bring back uh, into the light things that have been forgotten for what seems like generations. Um, and the reason why I, I, I feel so motivated to do this is because I actually would like to raise the question, has Fall River forgotten the marksman? There are no signs, memorials, information at all throughout the city of its sporting heritage and like I said, that goes back to the Fall River Rovers, the East Ends, or the Olympics teams that won the American Cup um, before uh, the U.S. Open Cup and before the, the ASL was formed. Um, any existing artifact of that era or even the era of the Rovers would be with any living family members. And the only family members I've been able to come in uh, contact with is a niece of Billy Gonzalez, 
who had a few photos um, that I haven't seen before that were uh, family oriented. And then um, Bert Patnaud's son. He has a collection of medals and ribbons from when he played for the Marksmen and the US men's national team in the 1930 World Cup. I was able to take a few pictures of those um, and it was just, uh, it was amazing to see that. That is the most, um, that, that is the, the only pieces of artifacts that I've been able to find from that era. At this point, it's been very difficult uh, to track down traces, but I also have only been doing this since October of 2019. So I, I have a long way to go to, uh, to track down everything and, and hopefully it doesn't take too long, but I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. The other disappointing thing that if you come to Fall River, and I, I believe I, I mentioned this to Tom on, on our tour, is that the historical societies focus more on the uh, industrial uh, significance of the city. And then, of course, Lizzie Borden um, and a few other historical um, significances that, that Fall River has in the, in, the, in the city's history. So they are aware of the footballing history. They just don't have any information on it or any any materials for it, uh, they, but they are aware of the football and history. And that growing up uh, frustrated me because the marksmen, we all know, were extremely successful from 1922 to 1931, six ASL titles, four US Open Cups, one Lewis Cup, uh, one of the first American clubs to win a treble in that 1930 season, the European tour, uh, having respectable results both in Europe and at home against European competition. Um, a zero zero draw with with Rangers, a one one tie with Uruguay, the Uruguayan national team who were on their way to winning a, a gold medal in 1928, but there's nothing to show for it. So the goal, as I've said, is to dig up, uncover, locate everything possible, uh, possibly related to the marksman. That is articles. I want to know everything, um, even if it's just a, a two sentence tidbit in the newspaper. I want to collect it, archive it, and put it in chronological chronological order, uh, any photos of players, uh, uh, matches, um, staff and of Mark State, anything um, in the newspapers. And that's where I'm starting off right now is in the newspapers, um, trying to get that, that type of memorabilia. Fall River had, uh, I keep forgetting, but I, at, at, during the, between 1922 and 1925, there were at least four newspapers in Fall River covering uh, sports and, and the news. And that dwindled down to two by 1925. So from 1925 to 1931, I only have two newspapers to look for. But from 1922 to 1925, I have to comb through at least four newspapers. Three of them are available online uh, up until 1923. After 1923, they provide nothing. So the rest I have to comb through microfilm in the library. So there's a lot to sift through. And it's amazing, even though they had many newspapers, they didn't share the same stories. Each paper had its own story. Um, some took pictures, others didn't. So, and that's what I find. It's it's I can't let go one newspaper and and leave it, and leave it un you know uncovered or untouched because you never know what you're going to be able to find. Um, and again, the goal of mine for the, the older club is to. Chronologically categorize and and document all the information statistics. Um, player profiles, events, uh, you know, stats, uh, not necessarily individual stats, but at least team stats, um, and, and put that into Word docs, 
spreadsheets, and hopefully at some point be able to print out copies of the articles and the photos found in the newspapers. The photo on the left here is of Mark Stadium. Uh, you have the smokestack and the clock tower of the Bourne Mill in the background. And I believe this photo was from the 1927-28 season, and that was against the New Bedford Whalers. Um, the Whalers were wearing dark for this game, and the white jerseys were the marksmen. Uh, well, the method to my madness, like I said, my resources, Fall River Public Library, when I can. It's currently difficult to get in there right now uh, due to the COVID restrictions. Um, I heavily focus a lot of my research on Colin Jose's book, uh, American, so American Soccer uh, League book that he has. Um, and then recently, I, I've been looking into the Roger Always book, uh, Rangers, Rovers, and Spindles. Um, I use newspaper.com, uh, ancestry.com uh, for a lot of the information that I need to find, whether it's on players, specific events. And again, there's a lot to comb through. There's a lot to, to do. And, and every, every bit of spare time I try to manage, even the slightest bit of looking through and combing through either the teams or, the, or a specific players or, or staff's history. The tools that I'm using right now, Twitter is my main tool to spread the material that I find and bring back awareness, especially on anniversaries. Uh, of specific um, achievements or important dates. Facebook, the team, the current team has a Facebook pay, uh, group page and you, the local fans now can follow us through there. Um, and sometimes they bring attention to our Twitter pages as well uh, for, for past information and current information. Uh, obviously Sash, uh, the organization has helped me greatly um, in looking and identifying information um, and I use, like I said, Google Drive's document and Google Docs and spreadsheets to track every little thing. Um, my goal is to go back into the newspapers and from 1922 to 1931, as best as I can, track every single game, the score, the goal scorers, and the lineup for both clubs in the ASL, ASL days. Because today, for the current club, I, I specifically do that. I, I take the lineup for both uh, for our club. Um, if we're playing a local team, I, I will try to get the other teams lineup. That's a little bit difficult with some of the other teams were a new club. Um, but for example, we have a rivalry for FC. Um, so I try to get the lineups for both clubs, but I will also check the stats um, during the game, the goal scorers and assists. Um, and I put that in a spreadsheet throughout the season and I break it up into league games, cup games, and friendlies. Um, and of course, with COVID-19 this year, it was very, we were very limited on what we were able to do uh, besides the friendlies and our toss of the Fall River against Fall River FC. Um, any pro what's the progress I've made so far? Well, I've logged every single article in two separate newspapers um, from 1922 to December 31st, 1923. And recently a third paper was just added. So I'm going to go back and do that again for that paper from at least 1922 to 1923. Um, and those are specifically Fall River papers. If I need any other information for online um, posts or anything, I, I use uh, articles from uh, either the New York newspapers, the Boston Globe, or anywhere else that, that was a, a soccer hotbed that had that information or had an article on, on said game or said player. Um, I've discovered the exact date when Sam Mark was granted control of the Fall River um, ASL franchise because the United, the Fall River United's 
could not agree with four of her rovers on a playing field. So Sam Mark threw his name into the hat and said, I can control the franchise. And he was granted the franchise on July um, 23rd, 1922. And, and, and there, and there's the beginning of, of one of the greatest American soccer clubs in history. Um, I found amazing photos of the exterior of Mark Stadium in the newspapers and on the interior, because when you just do a random Google search, you can't find anything that's Mark Stadium. And there's a lot of things marked as Mark Stadium that are not Mark Stadium is what I've come to find. Um, as I said previously, I'd have interviews with um, Billy Gonzalez's niece and Bert Patton's son. But I've also had communication with Dave McEachern's grandson and a relative of Bill Patterson, who is in England. So, and that's been through Twitter and I've been trying to find um, things on their relatives as, you know, as, as much as I can. And when I do, I send it their way. Um, unfortunately, they don't have much else to offer on their relatives. Um, otherwise I would have it in the collection already. Um, I've also discovered lists of exhibitions that are not recorded in any other books or media. Um, these are your local uh, teams from Fall River or Rhode Island that played the marksman uh, because an ASL game was, was canceled or postponed, um, but also just to, to, to gauge the club's form. Uh, there's a lot of player profiles in the Four River newspapers and the amazing community services that they offered the people of Four River at that time. It was amazing um, what they were able to do and, and get involved with the community. Um, dates of signings and scouting completed by Sam Mark, these are all logged into the newspapers. Sam Mark was a very well-known person in Fall River. He was a three-sports sp star at the local high school at Durfee, um, American football, uh, basketball, and baseball. Um, so he was a well-known athlete and well-known sports promoter. So he, he was running around in Canada, United States, other parts of the United States, England, recruiting the best, the best players he could. Um, and then there's a lot of interesting stories that I've uh, come to find uh, with the articles. I'm going to share some with you. Uh, the one I find the, the most interesting is how Mark's stadium got its name. Um, they, they had a naming contest where the winner would win $20 worth of gold. Um, and this was all done by mail-in balloting <laughs> with their submission. So Miss Annie Martin was the winner because after they took um, note of all the name submissions, Mark's stadium was voted the winner. Annie Martin's submission came in two, two days before um, Alex Fournier's and J.W. Clark's submission. So therefore, to reward them, Sam Mark gave, him, gave both of them season tickets for the 1922-23 season, whereas Annie Mark got $20 worth of gold. And that's how the ad was, um, was listed in the newspapers. Uh, then you have here Harold Britton, uh, the great striker. Um, and club legend was actually a coach for all of the grammar and primary schools in Fall River at the time. And it was called the Herald's Boys um, for the Herald newspaper um, in Fall River. And that league continued uh, through, uh, for, uh, throughout until the, the 30s, as far as my research, my research shows. But Harold Britton had a significant impact on how to coach the boys and teach them, uh, not just individually, but he would go and participate in practices with each school and, and monitor how the games were. So the youth system was definitely getting involved in, in the sport, and this was all run 
and, and held with the, the newspapers and Harold Britain, and of course, with the permission of, of Sam Mark as well. Uh, this is the first, I would, I want to dare say the first team photo of the marksman ever taken. This was taken um, in, on September 24th, 1922, in the first ever game played by the marksman against Salesville, Rhode Island. As you can see, this is the unfinished Mark Stadium, as the newspapers uh, did ad advertise that to the fans, that this was the opening event of the stadium, but it was not to be completed. As you can see, you can see stands, and then that's the Bourne Mill in the background. And here we have Clark, Miller, Radican, Britton, Holker, uh, Lorimer, Booth, Potts, Collier, Carney, Weir, and Healy were our starting 11 in a 3-3 draw with Salesville. And here is a remarkable, I, I mean, the caption says remarkable photo of the stadium, but it really is. This was taken on top of Chauve Mill um, in Tiverton, which no longer exists. Um, and it shows the completed Mark Stadium. I believe this was from the uh, November 18th match against J.P. Uh, Coates in the U.S. Open Cup. It was a, a, a replay because uh, it was a draw in Pawtucket um, the week before. The Marksman won 4 nothing. You can see the. this is where they fit 15,000 fans to see this game. The next photo is an interesting one of the same match. Um, this You can see in the background the L-shaped grandstand. There are groups of people. The crowd is actually standing on the roof to watch this game. Uh, that's how packed this, this game was. And these are photos that I've never seen before on any Google searches or, or even into several books. Um, that discussed Mark Stadium, but had no photos provided. Um, so these are the things that have interested me and have, have made me feel great on doing what I'm doing. And the goal is to, with, with all that I'm doing with the previous club, is to connect it with the current club and just make sure that the new generations understand that they're honoring the past and trying to build the future. Uh, I want to educate the community of the past and how the current club wants to keep a tradition going. Um, let the, the local kids and, and the city understand that there's information in historical sites related to the club throughout the city, including former homes of players, um, specific sites on where uh, the old athletic grounds were used to stand on, where the Rovers won trophies and where, uh, where the Marksmen won their trophies at Mark Stadium. People really don't understand or know what is there because, again, there's nothing uh, memorable uh, memorialized there. There's no signs. There's there's literally no history uh, tracked in the city or in Tiverton on that. Um, and for the current club, I'm tracking significant events, for example, tryouts, signings, releases, sponsors, community connections. I track the roster, um, simple, quick player stats, goals, assists, cards, um, the season's games and results. Um, I help the coach with any statistics and, and specific plays during games. So I'll give him some information during halftime and we collaborate at the end of a game later, usually with all the staff. Um, and again, the club is not here to, to take the history of the previous club. They're just here to bring it back into the light, to, make for, uh, to let Fall River understand its history, recognize its history, put it out for everyone to see, and then try to build something new in the that can go on into the future. Um, my plan for all this work uh, is to help the club connect with local establishments and create future gathering areas, uh, whether it be pubs, breweries, or even uh, set up a clubhouse. This is going to be 
more of a goal taking taken after post COVID. Hopefully, at some point, we will have a time where we won't have to worry about COVID. Um, and then attempt to connect with the owner of the lot in North Tiverton and discuss the significance of the area and see if there's anything that we can do to at least put a plaque or, or maybe even allow us to have a game there someday, <laughs> something. Um, and then attempt to address the lack of recognition of the city's past with City Hall. Again, we respect the significant issues going on with COVID, specifically Fall River right now. We are in our, the red zone in Massachusetts counties. It has increased significantly, unfortunately. And, you know, we're firm believers that safety first, community first, we can take care of that after. Um, and that's what that's my goal in the future is to reach out and and try to get the city to bring up some of the history and put signs out as as to date the only the only sign of of appreciation to the city's history is um, there's a field in fall river it's at britland park uh, the former site of big berry stadium um, another significant piece of fall river history and it's got a, a white plaque that tom saw in our tour this is that states uh, in honor of billy gonzalez this is billy gonzalez's field uh, so a field, a turf field named after him, and that's really all we have. And it's a very small little white plaque on a chain link fence. Um, I would like to continue to try and locate more important information and connections with the past. Um, begin trying to, uh, to in tying in the local youth as we have future plans for an academy, uh, introducing them to the names of Tommy Swords, Billy Gonzalez, Bert Patnod. Um, Ed and John Souza, Fall River grown, homegrown and developed players that figured into the U.S. men's national team in various eras, but also all the famous players who, who had their times here, like Alex, Alex McNabb, um, Bill Harper in, in net for the Marksman, uh, Jimmy Douglas had some time here in net, just so many players played for the marksman at, at at some point in their career during during that era and just introducing them to to those to those aspects and in, in the history i mean i posted recently something on bert patnaud uh the other day for his birthday and i i wonder how many people in fall river know that he was from fall river and had that record of scoring the first hat trick in a world cup um so that's my goal and in the end of all this i hope to write a book um later on in life, this is a long, long-term goal to write a, a book about what I've been able to discover of the past club and how I can integrate what the current club w was able to do or is continuing to do at that time. That is my presentation. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, Bob. And thank you, David. I mean, just three, you know, wonderful presentations, you know, that span, you know, the, the continental United States, uh, different eras, different resources and sources available. So I'd love to kick off the, the question and answer um, with a simple question. And I'm going to encourage others to, to join in uh, after that. Um, let's say there is someone who is on this call or will watch this once it's posted on the website. How would you define the purpose of the club historian and what pieces of advice would you give them as they start this journey that all three of you are on, whether it's for a year plus, five years, 10 years, you know, or collecting, you know, that first coin from Pele's, you know, final 
match in 1977. So yeah, the purpose of the club historian and then some initial advice for, for people. I'll, I'll go ahead and take that. Um, since I went first, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on that one and just say that, you know, before I began uh, as the Cosmos club historian, I was uh, lucky enough to, to be familiar with the work and, and also to be friends with two club historians, the two great, great clubs. Uh, yeah, I was already friends with Ian Cook, uh, the club historian of Arsenal Football Club, and I was already uh, friends with David Mason, the club historian at Rangers Football Club in Glasgow. So <clears throat> for those two, two clubs, um, the role of a club historian was already a, a, an integral role that the, was involved in the day-to-day -day of the club in very different ways. Uh, Ian's role at Arsenal and David's role at, at, at Rangers are very different, um, but they're so much a part of the fabric of, of the club and its identity and the, their sense of custodianship and the, the respect with which they were, they're treated um, within the club was something that um, had a huge impact on me. Uh, so I think more than anything, the purpose, uh, as you say, the way I see it, it, since, you know, working with the Cosmos, I've come to, you know, collaborate more, even more with Ian and, and David, but also, uh, you know, I want to mention um, Rick Lanville of Chelsea, David Speed of Hearts uh, in Edinburgh has been a huge influence to me. He's given me loads of advice and a lot of help. Gary James of Manchester City. Um, if you don't know his work, I know some of you uh, in the call are friends with him too. Uh, he's he's a really great example. Uh, Ian Rigby of Preston North End, right? The, all of these club historians um, and the, the role that they have within the club whether it's a salaried position or a little bit more of an honorary position, um, it seems to me like the role of the club historian can vary greatly from club to club or even different ownership group of those clubs, right? Um, I've only really worked with two different ownership groups uh, in the, you know, since, since working with the Cosmos uh, in 2012 in a direct way, but uh, some of those club historians have worked with several different iterations. So um, kind of going with the flow in terms of uh, uh, how organizations evolve, um, the interpersonal and group dynamics that, that um, mutate uh, as teams go from season to season and um, front office staff come and go. Um, more than anything, you know, what all of those club historians have in common and what I've tried to, to do with the Cosmos is to um, really serve as the custodian of, of the values and the stories and understanding, first and foremost, um, that, that the club is, is this mixture between the, the players and the coaching staff, um, the, the core product, if you will, in, from a sport management perspective, um, but also the, the fans and understanding the, 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 the fans um, and the way in which the, the club plays such a crucial role in their sense of, of, of identity um, and carrying, carrying that forward, um, keeping, keeping things going, that, that sense of responsibility um, means an awful lot to me. And, and obviously it does with, the, uh, with my fellow two speakers today. I'm sure they'd answer it in probably different ways than I would. That's my answer. 
do, doing this with such a short time and, and not having the same accolades as, as everyone else, I just did it out of pure passion um, and dedication to the city. Um, I really love my city of Fall River. I defend it. Um, and and just, it, it almost like hurt me not knowing, taking 18 years to, to, to realize what great sporting history was in the city. And I, I just made it known, like everybody knew me, hey, you wanted to hear something funny or historical about Fall River? Talk to Derek, talk to Derek. And now I have a, a, a greater platform to do that. And I've been able to find the history to to share and i feel like it's it's just preservation and and being the custodian and making sure that it's not forgotten um one way or or another and and that's that's really why i do it no matter where the current club ends up going or 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 doing my goal will always be to respect the past first and then uh whatever once i'm done collecting everything or i feel satisfied that i've kicked over every every rock every every log every little leaf to find anything underneath it, then I will continue to do the same for whatever the current club has done or is still doing. Um, I, I feel like there's so much history in certain parts uh, for clubs because not only because of the city that they're from, but their accomplishments. But like I said, Forever has got a mixed history with so many things. And I, I want the footballing history to be a significant part of it. And that's and that's where I get my dedication. So I would say if you're going to do this for your club, you need to be dedicated and start uh, start digging deep and understand why you want to do this, why, why your team needs this, and then planning out how the club would like to do this and track of it. Um, so I had a unique position where like we started from nothing and now we're developing it as we go. Uh, but I feel more and more at control in, in, in terms of, respecting the past and honoring it and and doing right by the city and the team and past players i guess my short answer would be i see the historian role as uh, being able to preserve the oral history that might otherwise get lost and unfortunately some of it has already been lost um, as well as being able to provide context to the memorabilia that does exist. I remember that when I was a kid looking in the Rotskeller up on the shelf with trophies and I found a little trophy that said from like 1935, it said Bayern Schlitz. And I asked everybody, when were we sponsored by Schlitz Brewing? And nobody knew, nobody knew why. Well, I, I know why now and that it was at the time a, a combination with another club, the NAAC. There probably were some old timers, some of, the, some of the founding members still I think were around then. And if I had been smarter when I was a 10 year old, I could have asked them, but it didn't occur to me and nobody else knew either. So um, being able to provide that context, I think is, a, is an important role. And before I open it up to others, I'm going to follow up. Um, I mean, it seems that Bob has been gifted this unbelievable treasure trove um, of artifacts, of account books, of protocols. Um, so 
for all three, I mean, what was you know your best greatest find or or that somebody's presented to you like hey you might be interested in this or or maybe the flip side of that like what is the thing that you wish existed what source or what resource love to hear that i i would say first and foremost and you know um roger alloway um who you know i just admire so much and um before i before i met him i was such a fan so by the by the time, and those of you that know Roger would would know how he would kind of react to that, right? Uh, really, you're a fan of mine? Like, come on, you know, he's just so humble. But um, he gifted me um, a lot of his files from uh, uh, Corner Kicks and Corner Offices, um, his great, great, great uh, book on the cosmos and Bethlehem Steel. Um, he, he had... He had lent me all of these files uh, oh, 10, 11 years ago. Um, included in that were a lot of uh, uh, press releases. Um, they, that was really fantastic. And, and so to have so many more press releases available that I found in, in the Cosmos archive that had been carried on from the Warner Communications days to the Pepe Penton ownership days to the present, um, seeing so many of the press releases that were never, um, that were not in Rogers files. It was really, really fun. And um, seeing uh, notes of contract negotiations was really pretty far out. Um, one of the things that I saw years ago that I really loved was, uh, Barry Mayhe, I mentioned him earlier, the captain of the Cosmos. He just passed away a few uh, weeks ago. Um, but he had, uh, he still had his contract from the New York Generals. Um, they were owned by RKO General, and they were the, the first NASL team. Uh, they were in the NPSL at the same time as the Skyliners, but then uh, they carried on. And uh, he was one of the players, along with Gordon Bradley, who had played for both the Generals and, and the Cosmos. Um, but seeing that contract was really, really cool. Um, and then ultimately seeing some other contracts, that, that's just really fun. And, and like I said, the notes of front office people while they were in negotiations of contracts, um, I guess there's a voyeuristic element to that that I really, really enjoy. And the, the, the granddaddy of them all, though, are the, the jerseys and the jackets and the, you know, the, the famous uh, blazers that they'd wear. Some of them have the... Uh, women's phone numbers written on them, things of that nature, uh, coming across those kind of material objects are really fun. I would say for me, definitely discovering some of those photos of Mark Stadium, that was always uh, a goal for me to find uh, ever since I found out that I was playing uh, on that empty lot um, before I even knew what it signified. Um, and I know it, I've been only doing this for a short period of time, but I think everything, every time I find something, it's always interesting and it's always great. But definitely the photos, definitely the interviews uh, with uh, Bert's son and Billy's niece. And going forward, the real holy grail would be to maybe track down either a, a championship pennant somewhere or a, a trophy related to the marksman that is somewhere stored or or lost hopefully not destroyed but 
just somewhere collecting generations of dust um, and and maybe tracking that down and finding it those are those hopes are are, are long and unlikely but I mean that's my end, end goal for this is to discover as much as I can but so far I think I'm going to discover something that just it, it just solidified for me why I do this I guess the the thing that I've found the most awe-inspiring was when I saw that pile of the protocols. I knew that something must have existed because back in that 50th anniversary booklet, there was the, the first page from it. So I knew something had survived, but I had no idea that all of it had survived. And the, the fact that in some of the people that were some of those early club members were people that I actually knew that were still around, that were still active in the club um, when I was a kid and even as, as a grown up. And I can, I can see them as I'm reading it. I can hear their voices as they, as they uh, provide reports. And I guess the, the thing that I wish I had was time to now that to be able to talk to those people and ask the questions that come to mind as I see those things to find out how, what things were really like. Um, and in particular, the, the stuff that I've got from the Johnny Hartenberger, he was still around, I think he passed away in 99. So if I had started this earlier, there's a lot of questions I would have asked him and he would have been more than happy to, to answer everything and tell me even things that because I know that from back in the day that I'd find out things from him that I didn't know about, nobody else seemed to know about. Uh, so that's that's what I wish I could find, but I know I will never find that. Excellent. I, I think we have Patrick with, with a question. He, he wrote it in the queue, but if he can uh, voice that, that would be great. Yeah, hi. Thanks, Tom. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I really enjoyed all the presentations. I got it here a little late, but... Uh, they were all really, really interesting. Um, the question I have is for the presenters, and, and I'll throw it a little wider to everybody that's on the uh, on the call, is uh, what steps or efforts have, have, have y'all taken, if any, to preserve or archive your work and, and make it accessible for future researchers? Uh, I guess I'll take a first stab at that. Um, there's, there's two sides to that one, right? Um, the, the, the first one is, is just preservation like I mentioned uh, in my talk um, trying to get game film digitized uh, to save it um, it's taken a, a lot of effort um, I think some people um, have thought it might be easier than it really is um, and then the second side of that um, is the question of accessibility so I'll just stick to it in relation to the the game film, right? A lot of people um, have wanted the club to make um, game film available, um, but we don't necessarily have the broadcast rights to it. So, um, you know, I can push to have uh, a, a digitized copy made, you know, to take the game film and have it digitized, but then um, one of the networks that may have had a deal with the North American Soccer League back in the 70s may assert their intellectual property rights. And that's happened. That, that, that's actually happened. Um, Steve uh, has worked with the NASL. So 
I think he, he, he understands um, how sometimes that, you know, those access to those uh, documents uh, can be um, become a really hot topic, right, Steve? Um, so in other words, preserving it's one thing. Um, the sharing of it is something that's not necessarily um, under our purview. Um, not always. Um, but I think hopefully the idea of just preserving things, and I think um, both uh, Derek and, and Bob, just the very fact that we're saving it, uh, and hopefully, you know, that'll be passed on in some form or fashion. Um, it would be nice to think of, uh, you know, it's interesting that the Bavarians are the club right now that really have the home, right? Uh, the, with the, it seems to me like the Ratskeller is, is like this great place, but, you know, it, uh, it also strikes me the safest place for it right now is probably in uh, Bob's parents' basement or in, in Bob's attic or, or wherever his workspace may be. I'm, I'm speaking to you from my archive, right? Um, but the, the ownership also has uh, um, their material objects and documents and things of that nature too. Um, so um, I've certainly been very involved uh, in, in trying to transfer things over and digitize that video. Um, and then really it's just a matter of hunting things down, whether it's newspaper clippings, photos, uh, material objects, um, and just trying to keep them in, in good, good shape. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, David. Yeah, I guess, you know, this is just uh, something that's something that I kind of grapple with, and I'm sure most of us do, is just, um, you know, we don't want to return to the dark ages where this is the whole point of SASH is to, to kind of pull ourselves out of this lack of information that's, you know, we've all been faced with. And, and, and I think there's a lot, you know, there has been a lot of great research done, and it's something I grapple with. I don't want it, you know, I, I just live in fear that my Google Drive is going to go out even though I back up, you know, or whatever else. And so it's just a concern that I think we probably all need to think about if we haven't been thinking about it already. One thing I was thinking of doing too is, is, is again, the fear of my Google Drive because most of my information is, is, is all electronic uh, online um, clippings from newspapers.com or any kind of document saved off of Ancestry.com. Uh, I don't have, have any hard artifacts, and any of them that I have seen are still in the living family members' uh, homes today, um, and and they pre they've preserved it pretty well. They've kept it uh, protected and and safe from the elements. My goal would be to print everything that I've done progressively as I go through everything, so I have a hard copy put away somewhere and back up my online data. And then again, if I have enough collection of data, maybe start a website and the book, of course, to later on in life at some point. Um, but that's a fear of mine, losing everything that I've already started. But those are the, those are the measures that I take to kind of protect myself and my, in my, uh, my work. Yeah, paranoia works for me. I've got everything on my computer. I have it on a OneDrive, and I have it all on multiple external hard drives. So everything that I have electronic is saved in multiple places. And then all the artifacts that I had, like this one from uh, the when the when Bavarians played against Bayern Munich, they stay in uh, 
plastic bins uh, so that they are not, none of my kids can get to or touch. Um, and I, I have been in discussions with the club about uh, making everything available on, on the club's website. It's just a matter of figuring out what type of format to put everything in between the, the articles, the documents that I have and, and, all, the, and all the pictures since I take every, everything that I have physical, I take pictures of. And, and that's the one bit of advice that, that I would give when you go and visit someone to interview someone, um, bring your camera. It could be, you know, your smartphone or a physical camera and you can get pretty good copies. Um, another thing that I've done is bring, you know, a scanner, portable scanner, if they have photographs, because a lot of the times they do not want those to leave their, you know, possession and rightfully so. Uh, I've met with a lot of players um, and they've given stuff to people over time, you know, journalists and others, and it never re gets returned. And, and that's part of the problem of this disappearing archive. So you have to respect uh, the photographs, the artifacts, but, but getting a good quality picture uh, can, can be, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite important. Uh, we are very close to finishing here. So I'm going to turn it over to anyone else who wants to ask another question. Uh, if not, uh, Patrick Salkeld uh, can give us an update on the next SASH session, which will uh, take place the first Friday of December. I, I have a question for, for Bob and Derek. Um, Bob, to what degree, I mean, you, I was really interested in that shift in the uh, club's minutes from uh, German to English. And um, the degree to which uh, a German or even more specifically a Bavarian identity uh, does or does not still remain an essential uh, sense of club identity. Um, Derek, you, you started off by talking about uh, soccer being in your blood um, because you're Portuguese. Um, my father's patrilineal line came over um, in uh, 1798, uh, but I would say that soccer has been in my blood thanks to my dad, uh, just growing up in upstate New York. So, um, I, and I'm wondering if some of that amnesia you felt in Fall River has to do with the kind of overlapping of different ethnic identities within Fall River. And so it seems like you're almost kind of unpeeling the onion. Um, also linked to that really quickly, I also am curious, Derek, if you're partisan now and you kind of almost root against the other Fall River clubs from your marksman perspective. But uh, I think in some ways, maybe maybe that that is linked in the question. So please, if either of you. Well, for the Bavarians, the, the German identity doesn't really persist anymore with uh, the, the current organization. I mean, there still are lots of old timers that come around and still will talk German as they as they watch and describe how much better they were than any of the current offerings of the club. But uh, in, in terms of the, the switch in the minutes, that was because the secretary uh, was somebody who was not an ethnic German, but was married to uh, somebody who was German in the club. So uh, he started doing it in English. And probably by the 60s, while it still was a, 
predominantly German club, but up until the 70s, by the 60s, it wasn't just Bavarian anymore. Um, I think in like 1960 of the of the 13 people on the squad, only two were Bavarian. All of them were were first generation German Im- immigrants, but only two were Bavarian. And probably by the the seven by the middle of that decade, that n- none of them were actual Bavarian, but all still were German. To to answer your your ethnic question, especially within the city, uh, Forum's got a huge history of immigration from uh, Lancashire, Lancashire, England to all, all ranges of, of Scotland uh, coming in and, and even Ireland. There's a, a little spot called Corky Row in uh, Fall River for the people from uh, County Cork. So um, the, the British immigration definitely had a huge significance in the beginning. And then because of the in, in, uh, textile uh, industry, um, it, it drew in the Portuguese, specifically from the Azores. Uh, and the Portuguese actually weren't introduced to football at that point. Um, Billy Gonzalez came from Madeira Island, which is a completely different island from Portugal. And we were lucky that he came here at that time and fell in love with the sport. He easily could have played baseball as he was scouted by the Red Sox at the age of 14, uh, according to his niece. And he chose to leave public school and stick with soccer and, and went to Lucy Rex in Cambridge and then got picked up by the Boston Wonder Workers and then eventually came back home where he belongs uh, to Fall River. Um, but again, he was also a, a great boxer as well, and he was highly intelligent, so he could have done anything. But he was really the closest uh, the Portuguese had to soccer. Their, their influence came in the late 40s and 50s here, and back in Portugal, uh, soccer had kicked up in the 30s. Um, and I mean, it was also a propaganda machine for the, the regimes there. Uh, the Salazar teams, uh, you know, Benfica's greatest teams are run by Salazar. I'm a Porto fan, so I'm a little biased. I will rag on them as much as I can. Um, but that's where my love comes in. You know, my dad's a Benfica fan. My family's Benfica's fan, Benfica fans. My wife's a sporting fan. And it's no matter who you love, you still love your family. And it's in, in the Portuguese culture is family first, hard work. And when you have time, you you root for your soccer club, no matter which which one of the big three you you enjoy. Um, so, and like I said, when I was younger, it was always on the TV in the background or on the radio in the background. Um, so I fell in love with the sport that way. I started playing it, um, and and that's why I say it's in it's in my blood. I didn't know anybody who was Portuguese who didn't at least have an affiliation to a club and could sit down and watch soccer. And that aspect, so going back to the 40s and 50s when John and Ed Souza were playing with Punta Delgada, uh, that, some people would consider that an ethnic club. I, I think it was, it was a, a Portuguese club for sure. Its origins was for people from the city of Punta Delgada of the Azores. But Americans played on the team. You, saw, uh, you can find Smith's names. You can find Polish names uh, on, on, on the squad. So it wasn't strictly ethnic and it was bilingual. You had your old timers didn't speak English and only spoke Portuguese, but then you had your younger generation at the time who spoke both languages and were able to communicate in both both ways. And I still can't really determine why uh, soccer left the attention of Fall River, but I know that the the numbers weren't the same after Fall River FC, the reincarnation after the marksman became the Yankees. They didn't they didn't succeed. They were out within two years. Um, and then it was just uh, somewhat minor amateur clubs because Punta Delgada won the U.S. Amateur Cup 
several times before they had any success in the U.S. Open Cup. Um, and then since then, uh, Fall River SC, the uh, soccer club, did make one U.S. Open Cup final. They lost, unfortunately, and and that was in 1959. And since then, it's been more regionalized, more like of a Sunday Sunday league atmosphere from that point on in the 60s and 70s. But it was highly competitive. Uh, a lot of big rivalries between Fall River and New Bedford, Providence, in the surrounding area, as it was in the ASL. And my cousins actually played in a few um, Portuguese clubs. Uh, two of them played for Academica of Fall River, which is in honor of Academica de Coimbra of Portugal. Um, a lot of people from that region settled in Fall River and they made the club and they were highly competitive in the 70s and 80s. They have tro they've collected their trophies. They're, they, are, they are the Bavarian version of Fall River. Um, but the club has ceased to exist for the last 15, 20 years. But if you look at footage back then at a uh, stand standalone only um, soccer field, so it's roped off, no stands, everybody's in stand. You can possibly count 2,000 to 3,000 people just to watch a uh, typically a, a Sunday league game um, because you're, we're playing that person's island or we're going to play that region of Portugal in that region or they're affiliated with this with this city, so that the rivalries continued and that drew, that kept soccer going in Fall River, but not to the heights of Punta Delgada or or the Marksman or the Rovers. So, at some point, something dr drifted away from the sport, and I think it was also the city's own decline financially that that kind of uh, made it very difficult for any kind of club to succeed. Um, the Great Depression really affected the city. It really hurt that it didn't have a backup plan to the, uh, to the textile industry. And it still shows today um, that the city is in a great hole because of that. Um, I, hope I, I hope I answered your questions on that. Um, but I feel like it's, it, it's, it's all connected both with the ethnic, ethnic groups still in the city, but also its city financial demise. Thanks, Buff. So I'm gonna blow the final whistle here. Thank you to all our presenters, wonderful. And I think it's gonna be the first of uh, this series. We're gonna find other club historians to tell their stories. So thank you for, for being the very first.